All right. I would like to start, since our time is fast going, I'm going to start with verse chapter 9, verse 30. What then are we to say? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness through faith. But Israel who did strive for righteousness that is based on the law did not succeed in fulfilling the law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. See, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Does anything in those verses sound familiar? You're talking about current day? Mm-hmm. Or to anything you were taught in your past? It seems to me that our human nature, this is, that this is a human thing, and then it's our human nature to think that we have to earn it, that we can't trust it. In other words, the idea of trusting God doesn't does not register as making us righteous. It just how can that happen? Just trusting God, and so we have to do something to be righteous. It seems it's very counter, humanly speaking, very counterintuitive to say you need to. The people who trust in God become righteous, and the people who who try to be try to be righteous by fulfilling the law and don't become righteous it seems so counterintuitive well i think because it's kind of like making decisions you know do we call them right and wrong decisions or do we call them healthy and unhealthy decisions or i don't know but to live moral upright good people lives yeah. we think that we have the sole choice of what we're going to do the problem is that when you try to keep the law and you try to make those choices, you always miss the most important things that you're supposed to be concentrating on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, all our righteousness is filthy rags because we can't do it. We can't live up to the whole thing of the law. Whereas if we choose to trust him, then we're now changing from law-abiding citizens of heaven to people who trust in God and have a trusting relationship with him. And it's a completely different orientation. But I think that's, at least for me, that's why it gets mixed up, because I have to make decisions daily. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so it it feels like two things. Trust is one thing, decision-making. Trust and obey, there's no other way, right? (laughs) Yes, it feels like two different things instead of them being all... And, and that illustration has been used, I think, even by Ellen White, of the two oars in the boat. It takes two oars to get the boat somewhere. One oar is faith and the other is works. I think she favored later a different model for that, like tying the cart to the horse and letting the horse lead the cart. The horse being trust and the cart being works. I don't think she used that, actually, but... I think she would have been drawn to that. Because I think um, I think even James admits that faith is supposed to create works. Mm-hmm. 
Well, if our faith is merely assent, it's not going to. That's really not faith. That's just acknowledging that we agree with something. But real faith is trust in God. It's personal. It's relational. And it leads us to do what is right because it is right. But because we're in relationship. It's, it's sort of like marriage. So I, you know, I think we're rather hard on the Jews, you know, for going that way, but I think we're guilty. So at chapter 10 now, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. They meaning who? The Jews, the Israelites. I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. It's a very strong statement. How how is yours? Because here it says, for Christ is the end of the law, and everyone who has faith may be justified. Yours was a different word. Everyone so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Oh, I think believe. faith is not in the original Greek that they added that for clarification. Everyone who has faith may. <clears throat> I think that's what Paul means. May believe. Yeah. Basically, all who believe are righteous. Yeah. Because that everyone who has who has faith is righteous, or maybe righteous. It may sound like Christ is the end of the law. So there's no law. But the word telos, I believe, has the nuance in certain contexts of consummation or fulfillment or the, the final piece. So telos, I think sometimes in some contexts, means perfect, meaning finished, complete. So Christ <laughs> is the completion of the law. Not that there's no law. Christ fulfilled it for us, and in that way, he, he showed us how, it is, how to keep the law. He showed us how, and it's through faith, it's through trust. That's how Christ did it. So he's the fulfillment of the law. Any comments or, or questions before I move on? So when you fulfill something, it means that it's doesn't mean it's gone. It doesn't mean it's gone. It just means it was made perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see if we get more enlightened by reading on. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law, that, all, that the person who does all these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will ascend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips, and in your faith. And he's quoting Moses there. Which part? Uh, the <laughs> word is near you, on mm. your lips, and in your heart. Mm. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So he's he's um, doing a little sermon here on Paul, on Moses, uh, showing that Moses, even though Moses sounds like you keep the law and, and that's the righteousness you need, uh, that he's really assuming that you're keeping the law as a, as a result of trust. Uh, because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, No one who believes in him shall be, will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he's quoting there again. So let's see if we can find out where he's quoting. The last one. Joel 2.32. So basically it's saying for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a certain sense of... If we speak it with our mouths, mm-hmm. that means that we are confessing mm-hmm. that he is Christ, and he is Lord, and that that is enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it sounds way too simple for us. We know we got to snatch the wheel from the <laughs> driver's hand because the driver is invisible. <clears throat> well, what's interesting is that I've... Ne- never was this said to me, but I later realized it was just an underlying assumption. Because you know how they say, like, a Billy Graham type, you know, a thousand people came to Christ or whatever, because they repeated the, the I don't know what they call that prayer, but proclaiming Christ as Lord of their lives. They have a name for that prayer. Right? Do, do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not, I'm not sure I do, but... I didn't watch Billy Graham crusades when I was a kid. But do you know what I mean by the, if you say, if you confess your sin and then they would just lead congregations in these prayers. Oh yeah, it's the prayer of, um, Um, like I confess my sins and I claim you as Christ over. Yeah. And, and, and and if you say that you are saved, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's never, it was told to me, but there was an assumption that like that's not right. Like that's not that that's not real. Just because you say that prayer doesn't mean you're saved. Like it doesn't mean that. And you know, for some people, it might not, because they might not genuinely be saying it. Right. They might be just going along with the right. crowd. But we is but my what was that assumption that I've always had was if they're going along with the crowd, that everyone is. And that it's not a real thing, instead of acknowledging that. But I think I think there are a lot of those people that did that. They came away with changed lives, and they found themselves in a different position than they had been before. Yes, I, I would think so. I think I think God has made it as simple as possible, as easy as possible. But it, it doesn't stop there. There is some depth. There is some. Trust is is deeper than just assent, right? I think the baby was thrown. But the out baby, with the exactly, exactly. And I think <laughs> you know? that maybe this is the preamble to trust is is to just call on Him. Actually, yes. the ability to genuinely call on God requires a certain amount of trust. You don't call on someone you don't trust. And I keep using the word trust instead of faith because the word faith denotes trust. And according to Rabbi Jonathan's, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Cambridge, who's a Jewish, the preeminent Jewish rabbi in Britain, he believes that the old core Old Testament value was trust, covenantal trust. That the covenant was central to Israel, and that covenant was built on trust. 
Um, and he, he relates this to modern economics and, and a number of other uh, situations in our world. And, and so I, I think what maybe is key in this passage, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, who is Jesus to them? Is Jesus just my Savior, or is Jesus also this very humble uh, itinerant preacher or teacher, whichever you want? I think teacher is probably better with the name Rabbi. This very humble itinerant teacher who goes from a place to place healing people and telling them about his Father and about the kingdom and the nature of the kingdom. And what he sets up is so radical. That to call him Lord means to turn upside down all the modern and ancient presuppositions about kingship and, and lordship and, and all of that. He's not Lord in that sense. He's a very different kind of Lord. And that brings me to verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The name of the Lord is his character. It is who he is. And that's what is evokes trust. I'm coming to believe that the, same, the most significant difference between Yahweh and Marduk, just to, to classify two separate disparate gods, Yahweh is the God of Israel. Marduk is the God of the Babylonians. If you put those two gods side by side, the most significant difference between those two gods is rooted in this very concept of righteousness by faith. Yahweh is the, is the initiator of all relationships. If you go through the Bible, it is, it is Yahweh who initiates his relationship with Abraham. It is Yahweh that initiates his relationship with Isaac. It is Yahweh who initiates his relationship with Jacob and Joseph and Moses and all the great people in the Bible. God is there initiating his relationship or they wouldn't even be in the Bible. And they wouldn't have had a relationship with God like they had. So, Presumably, we can take that across the board and say God is the initiator of relationships. Whereas Marduk, you had to do everything in your power to get that God to come down to you and, and to do what you needed him to do for you, to rescue you from your enemies, to uh, help provide food for you, and, and so on. You had to work at it. You had to try to get into his favor. You had to build him a temple. You had to build him a ziggurat so it could be easier for him to descend from heaven uh, you had, I mean, just the list is long of the things you had to do, and you never knew for sure if he really came until he was idol was snatched out of the temple, and then you knew he was gone, and everything fell apart at that point. It's not the way Yahweh worship works. Now, it is true that Yahweh at one point leaves the temple, and that's in the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Um, the Shekinah that rested over the mercy seat left, slowly left the temple and stood at the gate of the courtyard. Then it left the courtyard and went outside the city. And then it finally rested on the Mount of Olives before disappearing. That's because God was pushed out, not because he, out of anger, decided to leave. It's it's more that he was no longer trusted. They were worshiping other gods in the temple. Uh, Yahweh is not going to contest 
space, he's going to leave. Jesus always did that. When there was strife among his disciples and John's disciples, or when there was a situation where they were after him uh, and competing for space, he would leave. He would go somewhere else where he was wanted. And I think that that this is this is the whole basis underlying this is the the Billy Graham method. The one flaw I have for it, I think, is that the prayer that you talk about is based on the what is it, the steps to salvation model that was very vogue in the 1970s. You prayed. You um, and, and it went step by step through salvation. First, you have to feel your need. Mm-hmm. Then you have to to uh, repent. Then you have to confess your sins. Then you have it's all you have to, you have to, you have to. It's really based on works. And then you have to proclaim He's Lord. And and yeah, and then you have to do, and all these things to become a Christian. That is not where it starts. It's <clears throat> not Him reaching. It's so if you if you go to the first version of Steps to Christ. That is where it starts. It starts with filling the sinner's need of Christ. But the later version, after 1888, she put in another chapter, God's love for man. That's where it starts. This is what I mean by God is the initiator of all relationships and that we are dependent on his love to do all those other things, like feel our need. You only feel your need of water when you well, you do when you're thirsty. But when you really recognize it, usually if somebody brings a cold glass of water and sets it down in front of you, and then suddenly you're, yes, I'm thirsty. And that's kind of the way it is with us and God. Which makes total sense with the creation story. Mm-hmm. I mean, he literally initiated creating. Right. He initiated us to have a relationship. Exactly. And he kind of stayed away because of their fear. I mean, he came and asked, but the whole thing of coming when out of when the when they and fell, and, yeah, and became afraid of him. Right. He called to them, right? And I suspect he called every evening. I don't think God is intrusive. I don't think he just shoves his way into something. He he asks. He stands at the door and knocks. How interesting that you say that he called every evening, you know, because in my little mind, <laughs> you know, a lot of the, the, the things that stay in my mind are whatever I had as a child, which is, it was just a one-time thing. Yeah. We don't actually know. He didn't it have. It was just a one day, oh, okay, the next day you're out. Or was it, was there lots of calling before, I don't know. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know. Huh. But the relationship, obviously, because they run and hide and start blaming everybody and not facing, they're afraid of him. They're afraid of what he'll do to them. That's all because of the serpent's lies. And so their trust is broken. What can you do in a situation where trust is broken? When they're afraid of you, you have to leave. So they had to leave the garden, and God can no longer interact with them face to face. That wasn't his desire. It was just the way things are when we don't, when we're so afraid of him, we can't trust him. So I guess this whole thing of calling out on the name of the Lord goes back to that God Himself 
is the one that even helps us do that. Well, let's read. I know our time is up, but let's read 14 to 17. I think we'll get our... But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed or trusted? And how are they to trust in one whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all have obeyed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. And you notice he, he even goes back one step further. How can they, how can they proclaim unless they are sent? This all comes from God, the initiator. I'm speaking, I'm thinking to tell a little story about being called. This is a little different vein than, than salvation, but it works enough out the same. There's a beautiful little story about one page in the current Adventist world. <clears throat> And of course, this is the Adventist world that has a very truncated report on the discussion over the document at Annual Council. And they give one, it's very short, and they give one statement, or two statements, I think, from the side that approved of the document, and one statement from the side that didn't. And of course, they would think that was fair, because um, <clears throat> the side that didn't approve of the document was a minority side. Not a, not a small minority, but a large minority. But in that same issue is a story of an Indian girl from East India. And, and if you know anything of the backstory of this discussion on women's ordination and, and everything that we've been through, the Southern Asia Division, which houses India, Pakistan, and, and so on, has long been most reluctant to ordain women, I think, of all the divisions, even South America and Inter-America, Africa. <clears throat> it's just not, it's not done in there. Well, this young woman, I can't remember her name, writes her story of how God called her to be in pastoral ministry. And she, she'd struggled she half assented, but she tried to avoid every conversation that would lead to, so what are you going to do with your life? And she would try to evade telling them, I'm going to be a pastor. And even in the article, she's kind of nuancing it in such a way it's a little vague what she's planning to do with her life. <laughs> you know, just the fear of rejection. And she got a lot of this, oh, you know, this is not something a woman does in our society. And you've let your family down because family honor is preeminent in India. But God wouldn't let go of her. He kept pounding on her door and kept talking with her. And he finally, she said, "But I, you know, I'm just not pastoral type. I'm too sensitive, and I'm I'm too weak, and I'm too this, and I'm too that." And and God said to her, "In my weakness is my strength, and your weakness is my strength." She was all right, all right. And I thought how perfect time, how perfectly timed that article was, that story, uh, in an issue that is directed in a different direction. That God is still calling women in 
He's calling them in divisions that reject women in ministry. So this is about God's, is, is this about, is this about us confessing or is this about God's call? God calling someone to go. God's calling someone to go. God calling us through that person to him. And the result is that we find our needs fulfilled in him. We, we put our trust in him. We confess him. We repent. I got those backwards. Sorry. And, and we move forward. And that becomes our righteousness. Well, this just is a reiteration, in a sense, of Genesis 12. Abraham trusted God, and God considered that his righteousness. Let's have our prayer. Oh, God who calls, help us not to drown out your voice. Help us to hear it to let you initiate your relationship in us each day and to respond to you in trust. Thank you for being a God we can trust. In Jesus' name, amen.